up to Deuteronomy. We've been going through Deuteronomy chapter 9. We're going to go through a huge chunk of text today. So do Deuteronomy chapter 9, and sort um, of getting into it, uh, I wonder if you guys are in a position, we, well, there's probably kind of two, two sides that you could be on. If, you, if you've been employed before, how many of you have written a resume? Just about everybody, yeah. Um, have any of you ever been in a situation where you had to evaluate resumes? Uh, it's, it's kind of funny being on the other side. You see some really wacky stuff, right? It's like when you're writing a, a resume, you want to right, kind of put your best accomplishments on there that really show that you're the right person for this job, such, at least enough that they would want to talk to you about it, right? The point of a resume is to get an interview. Um, to get your face-to-face -face time with the boss so that then in conversation you can show them that you have the competency to do this work. Um, but it's kind of funny, like, there's ways that you can just absolutely fail in writing your resume. And I've seen some pretty, some pretty funny ones, uh, just being in a manager's office at, at work. Uh, somebody, like, writing, like, a three-page long resume uh, typically, you want to keep that guy to like a single side, right? Because the boss is going to get bored real quick looking through a bunch of these. Like, it's not just yours. And this kid was like 18, so like you knew he did not have the work history to support three pages of resume. Like, like the only reason in the world you would have a three-page anything is if it was a CV and you were like a PhD-level professor with like 20 years of like research history to write down. Um, but like it was just like you know every single time this dude like worked in the garden or like volunteered at like Habitat Humanity or something it was just like you know this obvious thing and it, and it's just like man just look at it and it's like you know like it's just it, there's there's no like yeah it, it's it's bad or, or the other one where dude was like man I love coding and I'm gonna like I'm really working it and it's just like hey man like yes we are Apple but at the same time like this isn't Cupertino. Like, well, you're going to be talking to customers all day. You're not going to be writing lines of code. Um, you're going to write, I'll tell you how many lines of code you're going to work in this role. Exactly zero. So, um, in fact, you, if you wrote lines of code, they would belong to Apple and you can put them on the App Store anymore. So, uh, so it's just kind of funny, right? Like, we could totally, people could totally fail at this thing, which, um, and by the way, if you, like, if you need help writing a resume, that kind of stuff, I'd love to talk to you about that because I've written so many. Can't necessarily say I've been too amazingly successful uh, with them. Um, I know that they're good. They just you know, whether or not people are hiring is a different issue. Right? Um, but what's really interesting is when Israel, especially in this text, wants God to look at their spiritual resume. Right? They're like, "Hey, God, like, look at how great we are. Look at how qualified we are." Look at how worthy we are. And at least to themselves, they're saying, look at how worthy we are to be in the land. Right? Remember last week, all about, hey, it's because of my righteousness, right? It's because of my qualifications that I'm in Canaan now. And so in this text, we're going to look at something of a spiritual resume. I'm not even going to call it. Let's even say it's, it's probably even a, a fairly relatively good one relative to everybody else alive at the time. So I'm calling this the most pristine spiritual resume. 
doing so, Israel wants to get their spiritual resume evaluated by God. And they tempt him to this because they say, hey, it's because we did really great. Right? And Moses, remember, our, our uh, intrepid journeying nation is on the other side waiting to go into Canaan. And Moses is saying, these are the spiritual dangers that await you. Assuming that they complete the obedience that he talked about in chapter 7 and chapter 8, now they would be in the land in chapter 9, and he's saying, here's the danger. Here's what you need to worry about when you get there. It's not going to be, once you get into the land, over. You have faithfulness to God that you have to walk in, you have to live. And he says, this is a big, big stumbling block that you would get there, and you would think that you earned it. That you would think that you have the chops, right? That, that I looked at your experience and your work history and said, yeah, this guy, put, put this nation in. And so they have invited this, this critique, and, and God's going to tell them, and through Moses, exactly kind of what, what their uh, qualifications are. So let's, let's listen to the text. We're going to start in verse 7. I'm going to read all the way through. Uh, we're going through 7 to 24 today. Moses says, remember, and don't forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against Yahweh. Even at Horeb, you provoked Yahweh to wrath, and Yahweh was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that Yahweh made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that Yahweh had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then Yahweh said to me, Arise, and go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, Yahweh said to me, I've seen these people. And behold, they're stubborn. Me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I'll make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned, I came down from the mountain, and I looked, and behold, you had sinned against Yahweh your God. You had made from yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that Yahweh had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them out of my hands and I broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before Yahweh as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that Yahweh bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But Yahweh listened to me at that time also. And Yahweh was so angry with Aaron, that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And then I took that simple thing that captured you made, and I burned it with fire and crushed it, grinded it very small so it was fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Terabah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatapa, you provoked Yahweh to wrath. And when Yahweh sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I've given you, 
Then you rebelled against the commandment of Yahweh your God and didn't believe in moral basis. You have been rebellious against Yahweh from the day that So, you can probably see the irony now. This is the most pristine spiritual resume. And from this text, I'm going to pull out for us uh, three terrible sections of our spiritual resume. Right? You always have sections in your resume, kind of highlight different spots. We're going to see uh, these three terrible sections of our spiritual resume. We'll unpack the text here. First section, just starting in verse 7, is um, a prestigious lineage. A prestigious lineage. Remember and do not forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness. Now, as we've mentioned before, there are generations of Israelites, right, involved in this. And he's talking about an, a huge span of time from when he left Egypt now until they are standing on the other side of the Jordan River looking over, right, at the pass that Jericho guards and looking at an entrance into the land of Canaan, about to go up. And a lot of time has passed, and God has actually destroyed a whole generation of Israelites in the wilderness. And so what's really interesting here is just the fact that he talks once again about you. And he's done this again and again in Deuteronomy, that he's incorporated his listeners into this corporate identity of Israel. Right? That he said, you are just as much a product of this sinful nation as your forefathers, as your relatives, as the people before you. And he says, you know, sometimes in, in a resume, like the very first thing that you might see somebody's name, and like, if you recognize that name, like as an employer, you're like, oh man, I know this guy, or like, I know this dude's brother. Like, yeah, I've, you know, it's, sometimes you have that relationship. And in this case, God looks at Israel, and he's like, yeah, I know you guys. Uh, you're the guys who provoked me the entire time you've been in the wilderness. You're, you're, you're a bad like, and, and so it's, a, it's real prestigious, right? We've got a lot of prestige in just making God angry. That's our, that's our family history. Think about the way Isaiah talked about when he saw God. Remember this incident? Isaiah goes into the temple and he says, I saw, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, and there's this moment where he says, woe is me, I am undone. And he talks about how he is a sinful man, and he is among a people of unclean lips. He mentions that his countrymen, that he, is in, that he is in the midst of, are also sinful. And it's really interesting, when he gets this picture of God, when he gets this amazing vision of God, that he sees not only his own sin, but just the sin that he is literally like just enveloped in. That his whole, like all his friends, his, his family circle, his whole nation is also part of this. And he just considers himself a part of it. He considers his, his community and, and the sin that's, that they are part of. And he says, I'm sinful too with that. I'm in this culture. I'm affected by this. And I wonder if we think about this. And, and 
and, and I, I think there's a lot of parallels between what, what Israel has to offer before God in terms of their righteousness and us. Right? They're, the, they're the chosen people of God who have God's law, who um, have walked closely with God through the, the daring wilderness. And so they do. They have, a, they have a relationship with God in a sense that we could say that it is relatable to us. And their spiritual resume isn't any worse than ours, necessarily. Our own, like, what about our own culture? And you see, and it's easy to do this, right? To not have the Isaiah outlook, but to have the outlook of like, man, our nation's so rough off, and our nation's so morally corrupt, and you know, all the rich people just do whatever they want, and all these other people, like, they don't know the Lord, they don't do the right thing, and and you just say, it's all a them, them, they, they. And I think Isaiah, and I think this text invites us to just think of it as a we, as these are, these are our people, and this is the culture that we're brought up in, that we exist in, that we um, both are influenced by and influence. And, and guess what? It's just an atmosphere and a milieu of sin, and we're in it. And the humble response is to recognize that rather than to point the finger and think that you're some sort of island of holiness, to recognize that you, like Isaiah, are among a people of unclean lips, that you, like Israel, are among a generation that provokes God to wrath. It's actually going to be a really important, I'm going to just give you some foreshadowing here, this idea of provoking Yahweh to wrath is actually kind of the theme of this entire section, right? Because this whole thing started from the beginning of Deuteronomy 9, where he's talking about Israel saying, oh, like it's because of our righteousness that we're entering the land. And he says, well, no, it's not because of your righteousness that you're entering the land. It's actually the wickedness of this other nation. And at the same time, right, they could start to think that, oh, well, yeah, it's their wickedness relative to our like non-wickedness. They provoked, they provoked God to wrath, and so we're going to go and destroy them. And this text is there over and over again to say, oh yeah? Let me point out to you all the times that you yourself provoked God to wrath, so much so that he was this close to destroying you. Look at, look at the text. Verse 7 says, don't forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath. And then he says in verse 8, even at Horeb, you provoked Yahweh to wrath. And he was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Um, Look further at um, verse 13. Uh, verse 14. Let me alone that I may destroy them, it says. If you go down to verse, 19, uh, verse 18, all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. Verse 19, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that Yahweh bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. Also, he was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And then finally, verse 22, at, at, he lists off three other places. You provoked Yahweh to wrath. So, so this whole, the theme of this entire section is, yeah, like you really want to really pursue this line of reasoning? Do you really want to think that before God, that it's because of the uprightness of your heart that you're going into possess this land? He's like, let me just detail for you literally every single point along the way that you provoked God to wrath so much so that he nearly destroyed you. 
So, so if you think for a second that you're somehow exempt from this, what this nation is experiencing in Canaan, that they're about to, you know, they have provoked God to wrath and they're experiencing his anger and he's destroying them. That's true, but let's look at your own history because except for the mercy of God, the intercession of someone else, like, this would have been you as well. And that's exactly the point, right? That we would look at this. We would look at um, our own spiritual resume, right? And, and starting off, like, looking at our, the milieu of ourselves and, and what is our culture and what is our nation, what is our people, and what is our history. And it's a black one. It's, it's an awful one. It's not one that endears us to God. We can go further than just our nation, right? Um, another text we could consider is Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, that just talks about how we, just like all of humanity, are under the influence and dominion of the prince of the power of the air. We just, we've just done whatever the other sons of disobedience have done. We are children of wrath, like, like the rest of mankind, verse 3 says. I think this points back to our prestigious lineage, not just of our people, but to Adam, right? All the way back to our forefather, Adam. Um, where Romans 5, verse 12, talks about how um, every sin, every person that is sinful, uh, it, it all started there with that initial rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. And we were all products of that, and we were all touched by that, that text says. What's scarier is we can even go further back than that because... Without Christ and without the, the Lord's specific intervention in our lives, 1 John 3 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sin. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So we want to talk about our lineage. That's our lineage. We have we have an evil culture that we're a part of. We have a black family history, right? A family history that is dark with sin, that is just ink evil with sin. We have a forefather in Adam who set our entire race on a, a course of rebellion against God that we are a part of. And ultimately, God says, apart from Christ, this practice of sinning, John says, this, this shows that you actually are children naturally of the devil. That's, you, want to, you want to look at your lineage? Yeah, it goes all the way back up to the first rebel against God, the author of sin himself, Satan. This is real great, right? Here, here we go, God. Like the, once again, like we're probably not feeling too great about submitting this resume to God as, as like, hey, like, consider our righteousness. Here you go. Here you go, God. Let's, let's look. Like, look, at, look at my great family lineage where I come from. Yikes. Not a good choice. But it goes on. It gets worse. All right. So this is yeah. Up to this point, you might even just feel like you know what? Like that's that's cool, but that's not me. It's just like all the people around me. You know, you're kind of talking about and um, all of like the, the culture that I'm in and everything. But you know, maybe I'm not that bad. Uh, let's take a look though. Moving forward, and the way this narrative section kind of works out, we kind of have to like peel it back. It kind of has layers. Um, at the, at the front end of the narrative, at the back end of the narrative, that kind of work together. So we're going to look at a, a big chunk of text kind of all together with this. The second uh, terrible section of our spiritual resume is a 
persistent employment. Persistent employment. And we're, we're being really, you know, fastidious, I guess, in a sense, to document very well our spiritual resume. And one of the most important things on our resume, right, is, is your work history. Sometimes if you're looking at a resume as an employer, the very first thing that you look at is those dates that somebody was employed at their different jobs, right? And you just want to make sure that there's no gaps, right? The gaps in work history usually, usually hide some sort of event that can be concerning. Um, you know, somebody lost work, they couldn't find it, they had to quit, they had some sort of instability, and as an employer, this might represent instability that you don't want to invest in. Well, don't worry. We have a really persistent employment in provoking God to wrath. We, we, like Israel in this text, have pretty much no gaps in our work history of sin. Notice, notice what, what um, Moses starts to document for them verse, uh, in, in verse 7. Says, Don't forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against Yahweh. And then notice at the very, very end in verse 24, skip all the way down there, he says, you have been rebellious against Yahweh from the day that I knew you. Now this, this text actually kind of breaks up into a few narrative sections. Um, let me kind of point out how it works. You've got um, kind of seven and eight kind of introduce this whole thing. And then you've got at that section starting at even at Horeb, um, which is Mount Sinai, I remember, um, in verse eight. So yeah, I guess you've got intro section kind of in verse seven. Then you've got verse 8, all the way through um, verse 21 is kind of this first narrative section. So you got this intro, and then you kind of got this narrative section, and this is the biggest chunk of the text. And he's talking, about, and this is going to be important. Uh, we're going to get to this. This will be point three to why is this section so large. Um, but then, notice in verse 22, he lists off three other places. And then in verse 23, he lists off uh, a final place, and then he concludes again in verse 24 with a very similar statement to verse 7, right? So, so it's kind of, from the day I knew you. And the idea, I guess, ultimately is that, like, they've always been rebellious. And he uses these three narrative stories that illustrate this point, that they had a persistent employment in provoking God to wrath. In other words, they can't just say, like, oh, you know what, like, sure, we have a bad lineage, but, like, we, we got it right sometimes. We got it right maybe even most of the time. Like, eh, that was isolated. And we like to tell, us, tell ourselves that. That our sin against God, that our um, status before God, that when we consider ourselves and we think about the evil that lies in our heart, that it's actually not as bad as we think. It's, it's contained in some way. It's, it's just cordoned off in a certain section of life, or it was a past of our life, or it was this kind of thing. And this text is showing, for Israel at least, and I would say that we can very much relate to this, that just literally every single section of God's involvement with them 
They were never righteous before God. Think about it. Like they're they're complaining before. Like when when Moses comes to Egypt, they're complaining in Egypt. They're complaining that he's trying to break them free. They're complaining about the additional burdens and the slavery. He pulls them out. They're complaining about the wilderness road. They're complaining about the Egyptians fall on them. They're complaining about all this thing. They get delivered. They get to Mount Horeb. We get this whole huge incident that we're going to look at. They rebel against God right after they heard him speak the Ten Commandments into their very ears from a fire out of the mountain. I mean, you want to talk about the divine authority and understanding that, like, the revelation of God. They all heard it themselves. Rebel against God 40 days later. Create a calf. Moses intercedes for them. And then in verse 22, he, he starts listing off these, these uh, sit, kind of towns or places. Um, kind, of, kind of really interesting what's going on here. Um, this, this first one here in Tabra. So checking out verse 22 now. Um, this was the fiery wrath of God against Israel because of their complaining uh, in Numbers 11, 1 to 3. Um, Massa is the place where they tested God. Um, remember how um, in, in Deuteronomy 6, God reminded them, hey, don't put me to the test like you did at Massa. Um, remember that was the whole water incident. Like they, they did not trust that God was with them and sustaining them. So they demanded some sort of sign from Moses in bringing water out of a rock that would prove to them that God was with them. They tested him. That provoked Yahweh to wrath. Kibroth uh, Hatzavah is basically... Um, the, the whole thing kind of means burial places of appetite. In other words, uh, there was one that got really hungry for me. They're like, man, we're so tired of this man that God is miraculously sustaining an entire nation in the desert with, and we want meat. And so literally, I, I love this text. It's in Numbers 11, 31 and 35. Um, God gives them quail meat, and literally I think the text says that they uh, ate so much of it, like God made them eat so much it was like coming out their nose. Um, which is kind of funny. But they died. Like, he killed a whole bunch of people for their thank- thankfessness as well there. So, so he's just pointing out, like, hey, what about like our entire wilderness journey? So it started out bad. It went bad. And how did it end up, like, at the very end of it? Right? They're about to go in the land. Like, you think, like, okay, at this point, things aren't hard. Like, they are on the edge of the promised land. God has promised that he will give it to them. He's promised that he will be with them. They have the promises of God. They have the law of God. They have direction from God. They have leadership from God. They have every spiritual advantage they need. And then we see what they're really up to, what, they're really, what their real credentials are. They really prove themselves in sinning against God, refusing to go in, totally disbelieving him, and rebelling against him again. So, so Moses is right in saying, like, literally, like, my entire experience with you, Israel, it's just been, it's not been righteousness. Like, you guys, like, are really excited now because you defeated two, two nations, you're about to go into the land. He's like, I just want you to not forget that literally your entire national history is persistent, provoking God's wrath. Now, once again, this is not just Israel. Genesis 6-5 says that when, when God looked down on the earth, this is right before the flood, he looked at man, and I kind of I love the net translation of this verse. It says that this is what he saw about humans. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. Every inclination of their thoughts and their minds, it was only evil all the time. 
that's, that's persistent, right? If there's anything that we're habitually good at naturally, right, if there's any habit that we don't need to work hard to form, it's having, like, evil intentions. Not only that, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 51, verse 5, says that he was a sinner from birth, from the very womb he went astray. And that's us, too. That's us, too. Uh, Romans 8, 8 says that those who are in the flesh can't please God. That's us without Christ. We can't please God. And so guess what? We are very consistent in one thing as humans, no matter what, making God angry, bringing his displeasure. This is us without Christ. It doesn't tend to endear us to him. Instead, our resume, our kind of ability before God, is to, is to make him want to destroy us. And so, once again, you can see the foolhardiness of trying to present yourself before God and saying, hey, check out my history. Here you go. Look at my resume. I want you to evaluate me on the basis of this. Moses is just telling Israel, you do not want to do this. You do not want to go before God and say, hey, let's look at my righteousness and see whether I'm worth it. Let's look at my worthiness. Let's look at my covenant faithfulness to you. He says, you don't have any. You've been unfaithful all along the way. And you feel like, even as Christians, right? Like, they are, in a sense, they know God. There are a people of God. And all along the way, yet, even though God loves them, even though God has chosen them, even though God has made promises to them, even though that they are living in the benefits of that, they have still managed to make God angry every single step of the way. And that can be really frightening to think about. That as, as we sit here today, as we come to church and we participate in all of our religious service and worship, that on the basis of what we do, we are people who make God angry all the time. You want to think about your merit. You want to think about what you've done. I mean, even if, even if you know Christ, your work, your righteousness, even at this time of life, is still just garbage to God. We don't have anything to present to Him. We don't have anything to come before Him, write down on our resume and say, this is real good. The best resume we can come up with is really good at proving that we deserve every ounce of God's anger. If He were to pour it out on us and destroy us, He would be fully within his right to do so. This is the most pristine spiritual resume. It's got this second section of a persistent employment, but it's also got a third section. We went on. We want to make sure it was really well-rounded. And this is, um, third, a, a precise experience. A precise experience. Now, once again, when you're writing your resume, it's not just about, you know, connecting yourself with their knowledge of your person and history through who you are. It's not just about showing them that you have no work gaps, but you want to show that you have relevant experience, right? That you have a deep personal knowledge precisely about the kind of thing that they're looking for. And this is where we get into this kind of narrative section here, because there's a reason why Moses highlights this incident in Mount Sinai. There's a reason why when he could have picked any incident to talk about how completely unworthy we are, 
how completely unworthy Israel was. He picked this one. He picked a lot, but he picked this one. There's a lot of reasons. One, you think about this. This is Mount Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? They themselves hear the word of God literally come out of his mouth. Like, great fire at the mountain. It speaks, and they fall down on their faces, and they say, they literally say to Moses, you go to God and intercede for us, because we're afraid that if we continue to hear this, this is all in like Deuteronomy 4 and 5, if, if, you, if we continue to hear this voice, we're going to die. Because this God is so powerful and so holy, and we feel so unworthy, we can't take it. Send Moses up the mountain. He intercedes for them. Forty days go by. Forty. They break the second commandment. That they themselves heard from God that they were so terrified about breaking or doing anything against they wouldn't dare even go near it. Forty days later, they're rebelling against him. All of the section of Deuteronomy 6 through 8, remember, started from Deuteronomy 5, which was a recounting of the Ten Commandments. So, so this Mount Sinai incident is actually the kind of the cornerstone of everything relationship-wise between them and God. This is the way they were to understand their national identity before Yahweh. And so he pulls from this incident Right? which is the, the foundation of all the mercy and all the grace from which you know, God is going to bless them and bring them into the land and show them how to walk and teach them how that they should live right? in obedience, in discipleship, in um, conquering spiritual enemies and putting to death these things that would hinder them in their relationship with him. And all of the kindness that God has done them. This, is the, the, this moment is the touchstone of that. And in the midst of God's kindness to them, as Moses is on the mountain, look at this, this emphasis on the tablets. The, the word tablets just occurs so many times in this text. Um, I went to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Uh, further down, um, Yahweh gave me two, two tablets of stone. And notice, notice the path of the tablets of stone through this narrative. Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone. He wrote with his own finger uh, the tablets of the covenant. I came down the mountain, verse 15. The two tablets were in my hands. So now he's bringing them with him. And then finally, in verse 17, you had to turn aside quickly from the way Yahweh had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and I broke them before your eyes. And the tablets are not mentioned again in this text because they're gone. They're broken. And the whole point is because they had the very word of God and from the get-go they broke it. From the get-go, from the very start, even though they knew God, even though they knew his law, even though they had experienced it personally, even though they had committed to him that they would be faithful to him, they were unfaithful to him, and about a, it didn't even take two months. And so Moses pulls out this incident, and, and the, the thing is, too, the height of it, they broke the second commandment. And the, and the kind of the thing that emphasizes the speed at which they ran to rebellion against God. Notice, um, there's, there's two times this is said. Um, Yahweh says of them, they have turned aside quickly from the way that I commanded them. Um, he says that in verse 12. And then Moses, recounting it in verse um, 16, once again, says, you had turned aside quickly from the way that Yahweh came. The idea is just the absolute speed at which, after encountering 
the word of God, they took that opportunity to rebel against that word of God. I said this to say that if Moses is pointing this out to them, to show them that even in light of the knowledge of God and having the light of revelation, they fail so utterly at actually living by it. What about us? Right? I think we, we somehow think that having the revelation of God kind of inoculates us against like doing anything that would make God angry. That we think we're somehow better off because we know what God says and we interpret his word faithfully and we um, you know, really try to understand it correctly and know true doctrine and respect the Bible as it is. It really doesn't help a lot if you do all that and then you break it. You don't live by it. Don't walk according to it if you don't live. You have no righteousness before God. You provoke God to wrath and he wants to destroy you. That's our very precise experience, right? We have, we're really good at knowing exactly how to make God angry because he told us what, would, what we should do to be faithful to him and knowing that we do the opposite. That's every human being. It's especially us because we know God's law, but it's every human being. I'll show you this. Uh, actually, open your Bible, uh, turn over to Romans. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to show you a couple texts in Romans. Okay, uh, so up to this point, this sermon is like really a downer, right? Like, it doesn't feel good. If, if this sermon is still feeling good to you, you're doing it. You're not hearing it right. Like, but this is not good news. This is our best resume. We're presenting it before God. Like, are we worthy? And like, literally every single step of the way just proves how absolutely, utterly foolproof our unworthiness is. How airtight our like, reputation for God's anger and our desert for it is. Like, a resume is a really, really solid resume for the wrath, like, for deserving the wrath of God. It will get better, but not yet. What is our encounter with the law? Romans 7, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Uh, I'm going to read this from a different translation, because I like this translation here. He says, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. Certainly I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. This is Israel's experience. They wouldn't have known sin. They had got a law from God directly from his mouth already. He says, for indeed, I wouldn't have known what it means to desire something belonging to somebody else if the law hadn't said, don't covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through that commandment, produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And, and I was once alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive and I died. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. Because sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it I died. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But did that which is good then become death to me? Absolutely not. It was sin sin, so that it would be shown to be sinful. It produced it, death in me, through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, he's saying, we would get to see how incredibly sinful and bad the sin that dwells in our heart naturally is when it comes up against the commandment of God, and it uses the commandment and the revelation of God to make more sin. It's like, oh, I have clarity on how I should live now? Okay, great. I will use that clarity to sin more precisely. That's the way our hearts work. That's the way 
when we get the revelation and the knowledge of God, we use it naturally. We use it to just sin better. The law kills us because, not because the law is bad, because we're bad. And our, our evil is so deep and so personal and so well-tuned that it can take the knowledge of God that should lead us to God, that should show us the right way, and it can twist it and use it to offend God even better than before. And just in case we think this is only um, a knower of God experience, um, Paul actually talks earlier in Romans. Uh, stick in Romans for a second. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 11. We, we could start to think that, you know, well, this could be an issue, right? Because, man, it seems like maybe you're better off if you don't know the law of God, or that God is somehow, like, partial, or what's going on here. I'm going to read a big section of text from, from Romans chapter 2. Paul says in verse 11, Romans chapter 2, God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. When Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the actual like physical law. They show that the work of the law is actually written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts kind of accuse them or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So he's saying, like, even if they don't have, like, the written law of God, people without the written law of God who don't know God actually know enough in their conscience that, they, that God has given them that they have, that is a law to them. And the way that conscience works is that sometimes it accuses them of doing wrong. They feel bad. They feel guilt about the wrong they've done. And sometimes actually even excuses them like they've done right. And their conscience tells them they've done right. They've done the right thing. And, and Paul says, when they stand before Christ Jesus on the last day, Christ will expose those thoughts of their heart. And it will be laid bare against them as a law of God that was always present inside them. And God will judge them on the basis of that. He says, on the, he says, God will judge everybody who has the law by the law. Everybody who doesn't have the law will be judged not by that law, but by the law of their conscience. In other words, the more truth you know, the more truth you reject, and the more truth you'll be held accountable to. Paul, uh, Jesus talks about this too. You can see it um, in the Gospels. Um, but we're not done in, in Romans 2, verse 17. says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, all right, so and just, just think about this. As, as somebody who knows the law of God, as somebody who thinks about yourself as um, a Christian and growing up in the church, do you, if you have that lineage and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve what's excellent and right and true because you're instructed by God's word, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in God's word the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, how don't you teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that somebody shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you hate idols? Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And he talks a lot about how if you break the law, this, this lineage doesn't help you at all. And finally he says, 
No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. This is verse 28. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And the point is, this person has no righteousness of their own to bring before God. That we, because of our breaking of the law, because of our sinning against what God has told us to do from the get-go, we don't have something to offer to God and say, hey, I'm worthy of something from you because of my righteousness. And I think about, I think about this idea that uh, some of us, right, I, heard this, I heard this guy talking on, on a podcast recently about how he was, he called himself a Christian, but he didn't go to church, and he started thinking about this idea of, am I actually a Christian? And he was afraid, he admitted, I'm afraid that I might not be a Christian. That's a very dangerous fear. It's a very dangerous fear. To, to be so afraid that to evaluate yourself correctly, to evaluate your worth of God correctly, to evaluate your standing before God correctly, that you w- would be maybe fearful of doing that. You'd be unwilling to do that because of the cultural implications it might have for you, because of the standing before other people that it might have for you, because of the things about your identity you might have to admit. Don't be afraid of evaluating yourself correctly to seeing whether or not you're in the faith. Don't be afraid of looking at whether you're approaching God with this resume in your hands versus approaching God like the Apostle Paul does. We're going to see in a second. I think that this fear of really evaluating ourselves, of really seeing whether or not we are Christians, is a reason why a lot of people stay in the church and just kind of, you know, sit on the pew week after week, kind of bored or kind of uncomfortable, or kind of whatever, because they're too afraid to actually look at themselves and say, I have no merit before God, and I need Christ's merit, and I need to rely fully on Him and put my trust fully in Him. They're too afraid to do that, to actually evaluate themselves. They're too afraid they might not be what they think they are, that they're not willing to find a new identity. They're not willing to to really look at their resume before God and see it for the trash that it is. And so... I want us all, like, if, if this is you, like, think about this for a moment. I, this is the benefit of putting this in front of our eyes. This is the benefit of Moses putting this in front of Israel's eyes because he wants to back up what he said at the beginning, which is, it is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your standing. It is not because of the name Israelite or the name Christian. It is not because you had this history of being with God or being with the people of God or, or going to the festivals or going to church or reading his word or knowing his word. He says, it is not because of any of your righteousness that God is gracious and merciful to you. That's not how you stand. That's not how you submit yourself before God as one to be judged by God, which we all will be judged by God. No, not on the basis of our merit. Philippians, you can turn there if you want. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 3. Paul says, We're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, in who we are apart from God, in our own works, in our own achievement. No confidence. He says, Though I myself, if you wanted to you know, construct a, a kind of resume, I have a reason for confidence in the flesh. If anybody else thinks he's got reasons, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, like the law says, of the people of Israel, the chosen ones who have the um, 
You have the law of the tribe of Benjamin, right? a very distinguished tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, as to God's word, I was a faithful interpreter. I was a Pharisee. I was someone who tried to keep it. I was a conservative. As to the zeal, right? if you want to see, if, did I actually care about it, or I was just kind of bored in synagogue? I was a persecutor of the church. I put action to my belief. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And if you wanted to think about the legal code that me and my Pharisee homies constructed, kept it. I wasn't a rebel. I wasn't secretly. I was, I was faithful to it. Whatever gain I had, I looked at this resume and saw it for what it was. I counted it as loss. It's garbage. It's awful. Literally, the word is like utter gross trash. I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. The, the gross trash word actually comes in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. Listen to that. The surpassing worth. The more amazing, excellent worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish, as garbage, as trash, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what Paul is after. Because you want to take your resume, you want to look at it for everything it is, and you want to recognize with true spiritual eyes that it is garbage before God, it is trash, and you want to throw that thing in the shredder. And you want to say, I'm, I'm going to get rid of any kind of worth I have, any kind of lineage I have, any kind of just cultural association with Christianity or the church that I have. I don't care about that. I don't care about who I've been before. I don't care about trying to earn my way to God, trying to work my way to God, trying to find my own righteousness before God, even as somebody in the church. I want to know Jesus. Because if I know Jesus, and if my faith is in him, my faith can be in him in such a way that it's his righteousness God looks at. That it's his righteousness that is given to me. That when God evaluates me and my worth, he looks at Jesus' resume. That he stops looking at mine, which is trash and garbage and rubbish, and I throw it all away so that I can just have Jesus. And I can just know him. And I wonder, do you know Jesus that? Have you surrendered your whole whatever kind of work or whatever kind of worth or whatever kind of identity that you have for yourself? And you said, it's garbage. I don't want it. I want Christ as my identity. I want Christ as my knowledge. I want Christ as my righteousness. I want to know Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to, I want to count the cost like Jesus said. I want to lay aside every kind of other pursuit in my life. I want to lay aside every kind of other thing that I wanted to do in my life for me, for my kingdom, for my work, for my resume. I just want to get rid of that and just live for Jesus, to know Jesus, to experience his power in my life, to experience his, his righteousness changing me, to experience the suffering, Paul says, that Jesus experienced. I'm so devoted to him that people will hate me in the same way they hated him, a perfect man. This is the hope. This is the hope. You have a really solid resume to earn the wrath of God. Even, even as somebody, I would say, that calls himself a Christian, 
Your Christianness does not give you a standing before God. You know what gives you a standing before God? Jesus. What he did. His righteousness. His obedient life. His perfection. His promise. His mercy. And if you would just believe in him, you'd have it. If you would just have faith in him. Faith in him that says, you're king, you're righteous, you're in charge, I surrender to you, and I stop trying to trust in any kind of identity that I have, any kind of worth that I have. And you would stand before God as one righteous, and you would never be the kind of person who would think for a second in self-righteousness because of my righteousness, I have this grace from God. You would know that it was actually on the basis of the merit of Christ that anything came to you, and that you stood only by the promise and the mercy of God. And because of that, you truly stand. Because of that, there is no condemnation. Because you're in Christ Jesus. You are in him. And when God looks at you, he sees his righteousness and his merit. And his merit is enough. I'm telling you, Christian, if, if, you, if you struggle with these ideas of guilt, or these ideas of belonging, or this fear, take it. And, and run that guilt and that fear do exactly where it's going, that you actually do have no worth before God. That's true. But because of the mercy of God and the love of God shown to us in Christ, by faith in Christ, if you stand in Him and you know Him, then you truly stand. And that fear and that guilt and that um, concern and that, that sense of struggle of identity can all be crucified at the cross along with the rest of your sin, by, by knowing Jesus. And I'll tell you something, when you know Jesus, your life doesn't stay the same. You don't just know Jesus and go along, continuing to, to build your identity. You lose that. You lose that identity. You counted as lost, and you become a person, a Christian. You become someone who lives for his kingdom. So let's consider that this week. Let's, let's think about ourselves accurately. Leave it all to God. And then surrender literally everything in our life to him. Knowing that every single part that we're holding on to doesn't have any worse and is not getting us anywhere. We just want to cling 100% to Christ and the life that he would lead us in. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you would expose us as what we really are, as people who really do earn your wrath. Lord, I pray that everyone here would find shelter in the righteousness of Christ, that they would know your son Jesus, that we would all submit to him, to surrender to him, stop trying to make our own identity, and just follow him in all of life, that every pursuit, every role that we have, every aim in our lives would be one that is in submission to him and, and targeting a greater, deeper knowledge and relationship with him. Bring our hearts closer to you this week through the knowledge of our unworthiness, but at the same time, your amazing grace. In your name I pray. Praise God from whom all bless.
Thanks for stopping by College Ministry today. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter, at Trevor Aiken, or you can even leave a voice recording through the Anchor mobile app. If you'd like to get in touch with my home church, Mission Road Bible Church, you can find all their information at mrbckc.org.